So I say to you on this beautiful morning, the Lord be with you. There is nothing more important than what God says about us, about the world, about himself, about the future, about life. What God says is the true anchor. And we come together in this place to hear it from each other, to open up the Bible. God, what are you saying about what's true and about what is real? And so we come again to open up his word to hear what is true, to orient our lives together. That's why we gather in this place. So it's great to have you here on this Sunday morning, first Sunday of the month as we move toward communion. These last three sermons that I'm preaching, I've prayed and I've wanted to give three gifts, three exhortations to my beloved church family that I think um, come from the deep places of my heart about our life together and your life going forward and my life going forward. And last week, we explored this idea that coming to this gathering in the framework of bringing offering is the way to do it as opposed to coming to look for a particular kind of experience. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that last week, I'd encourage you to listen to that. It's a a framework for coming to the house of God each Sunday that I think is powerful and true. Today I want to talk about something what I, I, I believe marks this community in a beautiful way. And my prayer is that it is preserved and kept going in the years ahead. And it's what I call the intersection of the sacred and the whimsical. The intersection of whimsy and sacredness is what I want to explore with you this morning. I'll tell you that I think Well, after I close this door, I just have a thing about this door being open. It's like like something unbuttoned or it's just that weird feeling. So there is a heaviness around sacred things. You don't almost have to be told that. We almost know that instinctively. But we, we could ask Old Testament characters like Adab and, and Abihu who brought wrong incense into the tabernacle of Moses and, well, God struck them dead. <laughs> or we could talk to Ananias and Sapphira who lied about bringing a gift to God and God struck them dead. Or Uzzah, who put his hand against the ark when it was on a cart and it was tipping over and he put his hand out to hold it up and, well, he was struck dead. And there's a lot of getting struck dead in this realm of holiness and it makes us kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We read language like our God is a consuming fire or he dwells in inapproachable light and we feel the heaviness of holy things. And we hear God say, I am holy and there is no one like me. And we bow down and the bowed head is a sign of heaviness. And it's appropriate. The greatness of God, the glory of God, we barely understand. In fact, the word glory in the Old Testament, Hebrew kavod, actually at its core etymology means heavy. There's a heaviness in sacred things And that's good. You know why? Because some heaviness anchors us in a windy world. 
Ever tried to put up like a tent or a canopy on a breezy day? And we look for weights to hold that thing down. And that is what life is like. We need some grounding in a world that's blowing. But here's the thing. Too much heaviness buries us. Too much heaviness is like concrete on the feet of a man in quicksand. It just keeps pulling you down. My wife Susan was saying the other day she was thinking about Charlton Heston in the movie The Ten Commandments. Anybody remember that old classic? And Charlton Heston is a winsome figure, very likable and fun until he meets God. And then he becomes like a robot. And we want to say, lighten up, Moses. (laughs) There's a heaviness in sacred things. But do you think God laughs? There's the other side that's not quite as intuitive, but if we started scanning the Bible and looking for the other side, the light-hearted side of the story of God, well, we might find slimmer pickings in the Old Testament, but we might find our way to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, where the scripture says, and God your Lord rejoices over you. He, he rejoices over you with singing. And there's an image of a a father or a grandfather with a baby in their arms singing, right? You just get that sense of of lighthearted joy. That's a descriptor of God toward his people, us. Or Nehemiah might say to the, the people, the joy of the Lord is your strength, which means there must be some joy there. Or we might find in the Psalms this word that says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And so it's not all Adab and Abihu and Uzzah and Ananias. There's joy to be known in the presence of God as well. And yet maybe it takes the coming of Jesus for us to get to know this even more clearly. For clearly Jesus is the full, the clearest manifestation of God. And if we want to know who God is, we look at Jesus and we look at his life and well we read things like this in John chapter 15 this is the evening before he enters into his suffering he says I've spoken all of these things to you and he'd been telling his disciples I want you to really be connected to me like a like a vine is to a branch because I want my joy to be in you and your joy to be full which means there was a lot of joy in the heart of Jesus. Even in the midst of his suffering, Hebrews chapter 12, verse two will say, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross and despised its shame. There's a moment in Luke chapter 10 where these disciples went out on mission and they came back and they were saying, it's amazing. I mean, even the demons are responding to our prayers and And Jesus prays and he says he rejoiced in his spirit. God, that you revealed these things to the children. So we start seeing some very direct statements of the joy of Jesus. 
And I want to argue that knowing God is full of the sacred holiness, an old word, the numinous, the sense of mystery, the sense of heaviness, the sense of carefulness, of reverence, of fear, of bowing down. But there's also in the presence of God the sense of joy and gladness and gladheartedness and lightness and skipping. I mean, (laughs) we bow and we skip in the presence of God. How do we hold those things together? I was thinking, could we find stories in the life of Jesus in which we could even see whimsy? Whimsy is a word that I love. Now, whimsy has two meanings. One's negative. Whimsy can mean erratic, can mean sort of undependable. So we're not using that particular definition. But whimsy can mean playful fanciful, imaginative, in an amusing and pleasing kind of way, whimsical. Do you think Jesus was ever whimsical? So this is where I now get to be an interpretive theologian because there's no verse that says, and Jesus, full of whimsy. (laughs) So... You know, we have to do like the Jesuits used to teach their people to do, to read with imagination and put ourselves into the story. And I want to propose this particular thesis to my thinking congregation today. What if the Gospel of John is bookended by whimsy? What if the first miracle and the last miracle in the book of John are miracles of whimsy? So what's the first miracle in the book of John? You'll see the text, by the way, on your outline. There in the back of your outline. We're not going to read all of it, but um, Jesus is at a wedding. And if there's ever a place for the whimsical mood, it is a wedding. And Jesus is there with his disciples and his mom. And, well, they run out of wine. And... Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes up to um, Jesus in verse 3. They have no wine, she whispers to him. And Jesus says, woman, what, have I, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother, whatever he said and meant by that, she got a message. Because she goes now to the servants. Whatever he tells you to do, you do. And now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, wow, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, if, if I had to identify characteristics of whimsy, I might suggest three things, that it's usually unexpected, that it's usually extravagant or out of proportion, and it's usually impractical. Those are marks of whimsy to me. Unexpected, extravagant, and kind of impractical. Does that fit? Unexpected, 
Absolutely. Extravagant. Um, my friend um, Pete Stafford, when I were talking about this text, and he kind of added up in modern parlance what it would have been perhaps in, in kind of modern bottles of wine. And he figured it was like 600 to 900 bottles of wine that showed up at this one miracle. That's a lot, that's a lot of wine. That could, be, that could make for a lot of tipsiness in, in, the, in the room. But, they've, but it's impractical because the wine kind of shows up near the end of the party. There's been a lot of wine drunk already. And so it wasn't needed. And it's the best wine that there ever was. And the whole thing's just got this twinkle in the eye of Jesus going, watch this. And you think, well, what was the purpose? And we look for these signs and we look for meanings and I, everything Jesus did was full of meaning. But I just wonder if there was a sense in which Jesus was laughing, lighthearted and playful and he turned purification water, the solemn, heavy, sacred place for water into the playful delight of wine. I wonder Hold that for a moment and then let's rush all the way to the end of the gospel of John. Jesus has gone through his great suffering. He has risen from the dead and yet the disciples are still disoriented. In their disorientation, they go back to Galilee where Jesus had told them, I wanna meet with you up there, but not yet and not knowing what to do, they go back to the only life that they knew, fishing, and they're fishing all night on the water, these expert professional fishermen and they've caught nothing And then there's a stranger on the shore. They don't know that it's Jesus. And this stranger calls out to them. We'll pick it up. Pick it up at uh, verse four. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. There's ever a whimsical idea have you ever thought about this? Like, like if he had said, go to the North Lagoon, that's where the fish are. Go deeper out because the fish are in the deeper sea. He says, pull up your nets, which is a lot of work, and just throw them, you know, five feet over. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, it's just ridiculous. And I don't actually know why they do it because they're, it, the text particularly says they wasn't sure that it was Jesus Although there's the same similar story in the Gospels elsewhere, and maybe there's something like, mm, this reminds me of something. <laughs> they throw the net over, and suddenly there's such a quantity of fish that they can't even haul the net in. Unexpected. Extravagant. John will record the number of fish, 153 fish. Big fish. Practical. I don't quite get how they bring in those days the fish to market, but I'm, I'm just saying that's a lot of fish. But here's even the more striking thing on the practical terms. They drag the 153 fish to the shore and there's Jesus with a little fire and guess what? He's cooking for them fish. <laughs> Apparently he didn't even really need that catch because he already got fish that he's cooking for them. And I got to think, here's another twinkle in the eye moment like, 
A fisherman, how about that one? I wonder. We've all seen movies of the life of Jesus, and there have been some that have been Charlton Heston-esque, Jesus the sober one. And he was sober. To come into the world, to bear the sin of the world, to solve the great unsolvable problem of human sin and the chasm between human and God, to come and to suffer like he suffered, unimaginable suffering, to, to have that hanging over his whole life. What Wait, a man of sorrow, says the book of Isaiah, yes. But also a man full of joy who could laugh. And I imagine walking with his disciples along the road, yep, telling jokes, head thrown back, hearty, hearty laughter into the, the canyons of Galilee. What I want to suggest today is the people of the God revealed in the Bible are people that have an ability to hold the sacred and the whimsical, the solemn and the playful, the heaviness and the lightness. We hold them together, that in holding them together, we find something of the kind of life that's found in the very life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The holding together of the sacred and the whimsical. See, we as humans are forever prone to polarize and God is the essence of integration. And there's something that I want to say. I believe that playfulness and laughter and joy and glad-heartedness and cheerfulness does something to our sacred sensibilities. They, they humanize them. And then I think our sacred sensibilities and our fear and trembling do something to our playfulness. It redeems it and makes it dignified. And without either of these two tethers pulling on each other, we're in danger of our gravitas and our solemnity becoming becoming melancholic. I, I used to know a guy, seriously, who would talk, and whenever he would say the word God, his, his words changed. Like he couldn't say the word God without having to change it. Now, now I'm gonna imitate him, and I, maybe I'm playing a little bit, maybe I'm not. If my memory is, this is really what he sounded like. He'd be talking about... Hey, you know, I was reading about God the other day, and it was really, you know, I really learned some neat things about God. It was, it's, I learned that he, God, is good, and, you know, every time I hear it, I'm just like, like, what was that, right? <laughs> our solemnity, our sacredness redeems and dignifies our playfulness, and our playfulness and our lightheartedness, it humanizes our sacredness, and we become real and whole and winsome. You know, I've, I've done so many um, weddings and funerals, church services, and my favorite moments, as I think back, are moments where whimsy and sacredness came together. And, and I think one of my most favorite memory moments that I have 
Is Floyd Roseberry in the room? Floyd, Floyd. Uh, Floyd and Catherine were getting married right on the stage, and both widowers, second married, and and they were kind of in their senior years. And I was commenting on this by using a reference, uh, innocently, uh, to Abraham and Sarah. And, <laughs> and as I did, suddenly the storyline dawned on all of us that, well, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 when they had their first child, Isaac. <laughs> and the whole, do you remember this, Lloyd? And the whole place laughed for probably five minutes. We couldn't, <laughs> we, we couldn't get people back. And then we moved into the vows and we had laughter and sacredness side by side and it made for beauty. I mean, just recently, I, I think I told you this too, but in my son's wedding in January, we came to the sacred and I, li- listen, when we get to vows in the wedding ceremony, I, I just push the sacred side. This is huge, right? This is, this is as solemn and as sacred as we get, speaking vows before God and each other and I pushed the sacred moment, and then I said, Forrest, let's begin with you. And then I said, I, Zahara, take you, Forrest. (laughs) And Forrest calmly, without blinking, said, I, Forrest, take you, Zahara. (laughs) And the whole place started laughing. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Think about the integration, the holding together of Whimsy and sacred, Psalm 2, verse 11 will say this, worship the Lord, uh, um, <laughs> it's always better to read right from the scriptures, you, you get an, an accurate, I, I love this, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, yes, correct, rejoice with trembling, rejoice with trembling. I've often thought, where do we find places like that in our lives where we're able to experience authentically joy and trembling in the same moment? Roller coasters. (laughs) Right? Everyone ever, you know what I mean? Like you're scared, but you're safe at the same time. You're excited and you're scared. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of the children of Israel at the Mount Sinai where God reveals himself to his people and in chapter 19 of that book of Exodus, God is all fire and smoke and saying, warn the people not even to break through and look at this mountain because they'll, they'll perish if they do. Chapter 19. Chapter 24, right after the, the Ten Commandments are given, uh, God says to Moses, bring up 70. Let's have, them ha- let's have a little meal up on the mountain. Four chapters later, before they couldn't even look at the mountain, four chapters later, 70 of them are up on the mountain, and it says, and they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Wow. Did you know that was on Mount Sinai? I mean, Mount Sinai is the symbol of the consuming fire, and it was the consuming fire, and yet in the middle of the consuming fire, there was a table set by God, and they ate, and they drank. And when I, when I read eat and drink, I read the language of Ecclesiastes, which says there's no better thing in life to enjoy the life you've been given and to eat and to drink. I just want to call us to be a people that never separate the sacred and the whimsical. 
that it marks us as an integrated people. And I was going to say, you know, if you're going to hold on to sacredness, how do you hold on to sacredness? Let me say five things. Five ways to hang on, to tap into, to feel the, the solemn, the sacred, the heavy, the numinous. Five things. I would say silence, being quiet, tuning out the busy, frantic noise, sitting together in silence. I would say sacrament. And in just a moment, we're going to experience the holy sacrament of communion, which the church is called to time and time again to re-encounter the reality of the cross. The sacraments are places where in time and space, we touch up against the thin veil that divides us of the realities that are bigger than us. And we get close and we touch something holy and we're trained in the sacred by the sacrament of communion. Tradition. To go back and look what our forebears who've walked this Christian road before us have learned and to read the old literature and to, and to hear the stories of old and something about something that's old carries forth like the smell of an old book, something, something sacred that's endured through time. Something old carries forward this sense of solemnity. Three, For mystery, embracing the sense of mystery that we know some things, we know core things, we know what we need to know, but we hardly know the depths and the dimensions of the God who loves us. And to be a people that live humbly under the face of mystery is to be a people that appropriately carry that sense of the sacred. Silence and sacrament and tradition and mystery. And finally, I will say, and a commitment to exposing yourself to big things like mountains and wide skies and redwood trees and the ocean and elephants. <laughs> I say that to all of you who have gone on our Thailand-Burma mission trips. If you ever go, and we invite you to consider it because we have an ongoing partnership with beloved people over there, we often go have an elephant excursion. And if you ever want to know the balance of whimsy and the sacred, you go into a mud bath with elephants, which we've done, right? Next to this huge animal that could kill you and you're splashing mud on his little playful face. <laughs> Big things tutor the heart in the sacred. And then if we want to preserve on the other side lighthearted, whimsical imaginative fancy, then I would say, number you're all going to make mistakes. We're going to make them all the time. Laugh. Don't get embarrassed. Shed the perfection script and laugh at yourselves. It breeds the playful heart. And right along with that, I would say, experiment and innovate. Because with experimentation comes the chance to try something new and always something funny will happen when we innovate. And we receive it and we learn from it and we grow from it. Innovate, experiment. Number three, I would say play. Play games, play tricks. Tease, but in the right way. There's an evil teasing 
but there is a teasing among those that are loved that you love. And I love to tease in the right way. Playing games. True, it, it can bring out the worst side in you too if you're a competitive soul. I, I, <laughs> I have memories of yelling across the risk board at my brothers. <laughs> but you know what I mean, play. For I would say children, keep children close because children know whimsy without having to try to, you know, do it. And then, and then finally, keep in the presence of small things, roly-polies and butterflies. Birds and puppies. Rocks, snails. Okay, we're going. <laughs> what is that? Ladybugs. Ladybugs. Okay. Because in the small and intricate and beauty of the small thing, there's something that makes the heart light. I call us to be a people. After, I think, the story of the scriptures where we laugh and we bow. Whimsy and sacred marks the winsome people of God. And we're going to end our time together with the most sacred act that we do. Sunday after Sunday, we're going to come to the holy table of communion. I'm going to ask Jane to come with me, to stand with me. We place stoles upon our shoulders to mark the sacredness of the moment. Not to set ourselves apart as special, but to mark this mark as special. Today, we're going to pass out communion, something we haven't done for a while, and to do that, um, I would like to invite, and this is a long tradition at Hillside, any four people that would like to come and serve. Um, to serve means we're going to have two people to side beside Jane, two people beside me, and we'll hand you the trays, and then you walk down the rows, and you pass, I like to say it like a sort of a manageable game of Frisbee, you pass the tray back and forth <laughs> down, the, uh, down the aisle, would there be four today? Tom and Mark are coming. Let's see. Good. Pat, I think we're covered here. Avenka, why don't you come on this side? Stand by Mark, and then we'll let uh, Sunny and Jiddy together be together. Good. Thank you. Communion is our meal that Jesus instituted by which we take bread and juice and we eat it. And by doing this, what we are saying with our bodies and our taste buds and our minds and our wills is that we are confessing the truth that Jesus came into the world, that he died and that he rose again and that that action stands at the center of all history as the thing that has reconciled us to God and the thing that changes us and gives us a new heart and a new life. And we, we bear witness to that reality and we receive it and encounter it again in present time. It's as if the truth of the death of Jesus is radiating like a, like a pebble that fell into a pond and those ripples are continuing out and the ripples are gonna wash over us as we eat this bread and drink this cup today. We encounter the reality of Jesus present in these simple, non-magical, but sacred elements of bread and juice. All are welcome to come. This is Jesus' table, not our table but I do tell you, understand what it means. And if the action for you represents 
what is inside your heart, then eat and join us in this glad-hearted meal. Where Jesus took bread at the meal where he was with his disciples the night of his suffering, and he said this to them, this bread is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he passed it, and they ate this bread. And in the same way, he took the cup of that Passover Seder. They were celebrating the great story of freedom from Egypt in Israel's past story. And Jesus takes that story to them now, to himself, and says, this cup is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, says the Apostle Paul later, You'd so proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes. And let me tell you what, we are a people waiting for the return of Jesus. And it might be in our lifetime or it might not, but we are faithfully waiting and doing what he said to do while we wait, to remember his death and proclaim it among ourselves so that we never forget where our center lies. Jane, will you give thanks for the gifts that we're about to partake of? Jesus, we accept your gracious invitation to this sacramental meal. We thank you and we ask your blessing now on the bread and on the cup. And as we participate, Lord, I just pray that you would lead each of us into deeper knowledge of your love for us and also lead us into deeper fellowship with one another. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Often we um, come forward for communion, but today we're passing it out so that we are able to, all of us, eat the bread together. And uh, so if you receive your bread, will you actually hold it and then we'll all eat till all have been served. You may begin to serve each other. Would you go? And if you need a gluten-free piece of bread, um, we have a special tray of gluten-free. And Jane will come to you with that. If you just slip your hand up and keep it up, and she will find you and bring that to you. So my good friend Clay Collin comes to give an offering of music as we worship and receive the body of Christ broken for us.